listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, please visit gocentralchurch.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Mike Corgan. Good morning. So, man, it is awesome to see a full room. Uh, well, so uh, if I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, my name is Mike. I'm the student pastor here at Central, and we're just so glad that you're joining us. Whether you're in the room or you're online, thank you for worshiping with us today. Uh, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 and verse 8 is where we're going to be uh, picking up this morning. And while you are turning there, I would like to congratulate you. You have made it to the week of Christmas. Uh, yeah, you know, you can give yourself a pat on the back or, you know, you, as people are coming in for the 11 o'clock service, you can tell them congratulations just to confuse them and make it fun. Uh, right. But you have made it to the week of Christmas. And I don't know about you, but for me, uh, I feel like the week of Christmas, like I get just as excited about the week of Christmas as I do Christmas itself. Um, and I think part of that is just, it's funny that Casey mentioned Christmas traditions, because I think part of that is just like just the traditions uh, that, that one that I get to partake in or that I'm reminded of. Uh, in my family, you know, we have a handful of different things. Uh, one is, you know, kind of leading up to Christmas one is that the grandkids, so all my siblings, we would go to uh, my grandparents' house and we would make Christmas cookies. Uh, that was an every Christmas thing. And, uh, and I feel like we ate more than we made, but that's okay. Um, but we would have... We would make Christmas cookies, and that was an amazing time. And then Christmas Eve, uh, we would, of course, my whole family, we would we'd go to Christmas Eve service, and then we would go to my aunt's house afterwards, where we would exchange gifts with the cousins and the aunts and the uncles and, and the neighbors and whoever else. If somebody walked by, we're like, hey, here you go, boom, right? Whatever it was. Um, and then, uh, then we would, have, of course, on Christmas Day, uh, my older sister would wake everyone up as early as possible, uh, just because, I don't know, she's weird like that. That's all right. Uh, she would wake us all up, and we would exchange. We would do the gifts, and what we would do, how we would do the gifts is we would like take turns, right? So each person opens one gift, we take a turn, and then at the very end, my dad would open all his gifts. Uh, he would open all his at the very end. But one tradition that is near and dear to my heart is one that is actually just between me and my older sister. Um, I think she's in here. Uh, one, and it was, there is just, for us, it wasn't a holiday season until we had watched the Charlie Brown holiday movie special for that holiday. I don't know if anyone in the room is like that. There's just something about the Charlie Brown, the Peanuts movies. Uh, and so in order, right, you have the Easter one. You have It's the Easter Beagle, Charlie Brown, right? Then, of course, in October, you have the great, it's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. You have a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving. And my personal favorite is a Charlie Brown Christmas. And if you remember in a Charlie Brown Christmas, there's a, a moment where Charlie Brown buys this Christmas tree. I don't even know if you can call it a Christmas tree, really. It's kind of like a Christmas branch. Uh, but he bought this Christmas tree, and it was the, the dinkiest, puniest Christmas tree you can imagine. And all everyone laughs at him and everything. And, and there's this moment where Charlie Brown gets frustrated, and he cries out, is there anyone who knows the real meaning of Christmas? Right? And, 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 and then in that moment, my boy Linus, right, with his blue blanket, steps up, okay, he steps up and he takes center stage and he quotes from memory. Linus must have been in Awana, right? He quotes from memory. Luke chapter 2, uh, verses 8, what we're going to be looking at this morning. So if you would, I encourage you to stand with me as we read from the Word of God this morning. In Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field 
keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. If you would pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for your word. God, we ask that as we study your word, Father, we know that your word says that it will not return void. So God, we ask that your word will accomplish your will in our hearts and our lives this morning. God, we thank you. We praise you. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Uh, you may be seated. So now when we, when we read, the, uh, now this passage is definitely one that I'm sure is probably familiar to most of you in this room, right? At some point you've probably heard this, maybe even as I read it uh, and before you sat down you wanted to say, and that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. You know, that's just kind of what you, you know, because you've heard this story, you know, it feels like a million times. And perhaps... Right. Perhaps as you read this, you know, it's almost difficult right, to hear this because one of the struggles that we have oftentimes when we read our Bibles is that when we get to passages like this one that we've heard so many times, we almost lose our awe and wonder while we read them. Right. We almost lose what we almost they just almost they kind of become routine. Right? Even the things that are incredible and miraculous almost become mundane and expected. For instance, if I say that the Son of God was born of a virgin in a town called Bethlehem and laid in a borrowed feeding trough, you're like, yeah, yeah, it makes sense, right? There's no, you don't even think twice about it. Or if I say that that very night that these, these, a host of angels appeared to some shepherds in the middle of a field and told them about this good news, you're like, yeah, that's how the story goes. Right? You, don't, you don't think anything of it. And I think because for many of us, our familiarity with these stories and our familiarity with some passages of Scripture has diminished our sense of wonder while we read them. And I think part of this reason, and part of the reason for this is because I believe that many times the passages that we are the most familiar with are the ones we study the least. Right? The passages that we are the most familiar with are the ones we study the least. I believe that for most Christians, including myself, this is, this is something that even that I sometimes am guilty of, that some of the least studied passages of Scripture are the ones that we've heard the most. Now, we would never say this, but in the back of our minds, we're like, why would I study a passage that I've heard a million times? Right? Why would I study a passage I've heard a million times? So what happens is that we may be able to quote the story word for word, but we have a very shallow understanding of it. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you can stand up here and you do the Linus thing. You're like, lights, please. And then you say the whole thing. But maybe this, what I hope this morning, what I want us to do is I don't want us to get up here and just kind of read through it and be like, yeah, I've heard this. I I want us to approach this story fresh. Let's approach this story fresh. Let's, as a church, as a room, and those watching online, let's approach this story as if we've never heard it before. And I pray and I expect that the Holy Spirit this morning will use His Word to encourage you, to challenge you, and most importantly, draw you closer to Him through the story of the coming of our Savior. 
Now, over the past several weeks, we have been looking at the advent or the arrival of our Savior in the Christmas story. We saw uh, the first week we saw Mary filled with hope after the angel appeared to her and told her how she would become pregnant with the Savior. We saw uh, next after that, we saw John the Baptist's love for his Lord while yet in his mother's womb. Last week, we saw the joy that Mary expressed when she reflected on all that God had been doing in her life. And this week, what we're going to look at is the peace that we have because of the good news of Jesus' coming. And what I want us to see this morning is this, is that true peace is found in the good news of a coming Savior. True peace is found in the good news of a coming Savior. So the first point I want us to look at this morning is an unlikely audience. The unlikely audience. Now, verse 8 kind of picks up, obviously, right after verses 1 through 7, right? And what happens in verses 1 through 7? Well, verses 6 and 7, what we see here. And while they were there, that being Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, verse 1 through 7 gives us a lot of information about where we are picking up in verse 8. What we need to know, before we go anywhere, we need to understand that Jesus has just been born in Bethlehem. Now let's just stop there for a moment, and let's just marvel at what that means. Let's just marvel at what that means, that the Savior of the world was born. God eternal, the one that spoke galaxies into existence and holds them in his hand, humbled himself to be born in the form of a baby. The miracle of God taking on flesh and dwelling among us, Emmanuel, God with us, the one that the nation of Israel had longed for for hundreds and hundreds of years, the long-awaited Messiah, had finally come to his people. I mean, we need to stop right there. Hallelujah, pass the grits so we can go home, right? I mean, that's amazing. I mean, before he multiplied the fishes and the loaves, before he walked on water, before he gave sight to the blind, before he raised the dead man, before he died on the cross for your sins and for mine, our Savior came to us. Not standing up on his throne, calling us up to him, but he came down to us. He did for us what we can never do on our own. He bridged the gap. Let's never lose sight that our God, even while we did not deserve it, humbled himself to come down to us. So the question now is this. Who should be the first to hear this incredible news? Who should be the first? So as you might have seen on social media this week, uh, my wife Kayla and I are expecting our first baby, which we are super excited about. Yeah, it's out now, Kayla. No, no, no turning back. All right. No. We are expecting our first baby, and we are super ecstatic about that. But I will tell you, the hardest part so far has been not telling anybody. Uh, we found out back in October, and of course, lucky me, I get to preach the sermon on, you know, the baby leaping in his mother's womb, right? And the whole time, I'm just like, mm-hmm, yeah, right? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, so it's been amazing. But I remember that night... The thing that was going through our mind, and I remember like, like when, when we found out, there was, there was tears and there was hugs, there was you know, leaps for joy, backflips and everything, right? But I remember looking at Kayla and telling her like, Kayla, like, we have to tell somebody this. Like, like I can't, like, I got to tell somebody, okay? I, I don't know what I'm going to, it was like 10.30 at night, uh, but we're like, I have to tell somebody. So 
we hop in the car and we drive now to the first people we're going to tell are the people that are like our close family. So, uh, so my sister and my brother-in-law live about five minutes down the road. So we went to them uh, and they were gracious enough to actually answer the door at that time of night. Um, <laughs> And it was awesome, and we shared that moment with them. And I remember my sister asking me a question. She said, have you told mom and dad yet? And I said, no, you guys are the first ones to know. And my sister says, mom's going to kill you. (laughs) (laughs) Because, and here's the thing, because there's just something about being the first ones to know, right? There's just an honor that comes with that. It's, it, it's, it's a humbling experience to be like, you know what, like the fact that you care about me, you love me enough to share that with me first, and that, and that means a lot. So when we take that kind of logic, when we look and we look at this, all right, who would be the first to know, right? Like who would God, right? Of course, the immediate family already knew, but like now we're starting to take, now we're taking this show on the road, right? Who should be the first to hear this incredible news? Who should be the first? Who were the lucky ones? Well, verse 8 tells us that in that same region, so most likely in the shepherds' fields in Bethlehem, there were shepherds watching over their flocks at nighttime. Now, it's important for us to understand the significance of these shepherds. Because for many of us, you know, when we hear shepherds, we almost have a glorified view of shepherds. Right? We, you know... Pastors are called shepherds or under-shepherds. Jesus in John 10 says that I am the good shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. And you can go all throughout and think of all these amazing men of God in Scripture that were shepherds. So what we do is we naturally, when you hear shepherds, like your mind just kind of goes to those guys. And I, I don't know, maybe it's just me. And you just kind of, you have almost a glorified view of them. But what we need to understand is that the life of a shepherd in first century Israel was anything but glamorous. And they were not glorified. They were not looked up to. The life of a shepherd was hard and difficult. They were dirty. They were rugged. They smelled exactly like what you would think a man who sleeps with sheep smells like, right? Their life was hard. As a class of people, they were frequently looked down upon. Shepherds were some of the lowest members of any society. They were outcasts. Shepherds had a bad reputation. They were considered highly unreliable. So much so that shepherds were not allowed to give testimony in a court of law. So here you have this ragtag, motley crew of people, this group of outcasts that society has disregarded and treated as lesser than, and they're about to have the wake-up call of their lives. Because they're going to be the first ones to hear the news that the Savior of the world has been born. In verse 9, And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, God could, think about this, God could have proclaimed this news to anybody, right? I mean, why wouldn't he first share this news with somebody who maybe has a little bit of pull in the society? You know what I mean? Somebody that could set Jesus up for a little bit more success. Somebody who could have, you know, kind of paved the way a little bit, made things a little bit easier. Why would God reveal this incredible news to the lowest social outcasts. Why come to these men that were so undeserving of such great news and such a great honor? And here's what I want us to know this morning, because the gospel isn't for those that are worthy of it. The the gospel is not for those who are worthy of it. Luke 5, Jesus says, 
Those who are sick, or excuse me, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, the good news of a Savior coming into the world is only good news for those who need a Savior. And I have good news for you. We all need a Savior. I say that the gospel isn't for those who are worthy of it, but that's just the thing. None of us are worthy of it. And early on, we see this in the message being given to the shepherds. And perhaps you're in this room. Perhaps you're in this room or you're watching online and, and you think to yourself, you know what, I, I'm just simply unworthy of God's love. Maybe you're in this room and you're just like, you know, uh, you just look at your life. You look at yourself. You look at the mistakes that you've made, whether they're 10, 15 years ago or maybe they were, you know, as you're pulling into the parking lot this morning. And you just think, you know what, there's, I, I, there's, you just think of all the things that have disqualified you from God's favor. I have good news for you, that Jesus came for those that deserve him the least. Amen. Jesus came for those who, that deserved him the least. Hallelujah. And that is reason to rejoice this morning. The gospel was never meant to be about us. It has always been and it always will be about him and what he has done. And because of this, those of us that have a saving relationship with Christ do not show favoritism in who we proclaim the gospel to. Amen. We share it to the rich, the poor, the ones that smell good, the ones that smell bad, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, anybody. Here's the gospel. Why? Because that is what we are called to do. The, the gospel is no respecter of persons. Doesn't matter if they were raised the same way as you were. We share the gospel because it isn't about us. See, often God will save those that we deem the most unworthy to prove to us just how worthy he is. Oftentimes, I'll say that again. Oftentimes God will save those that we deem the most unworthy just to prove just how worthy he really is. In this passage, we see God's message of salvation coming to a group of undeserving outcasts. And because of that, we see God's heart for the gospel is for those that are undeserving of it. So the first thing we see is an unlikely audience. The second thing that we're going to see is a remarkable message. We see the remarkable message. Starting in verse 9, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who's Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now there's a lot being said here. Right? There's a lot being said here. And we can sit here all day and just dissect this bit by bit. But what we're going to do is we're going to kind of walk through this together. What's the first thing that the angels say? What's the first part of this message? They say, Do not be afraid. As you can imagine, the shepherds were frightened, right? I mean, one, it's in the middle of the night. So recently, um, I have had this terrible experience where my smoke detector is constantly letting me know that the battery is low. <laughs> and it only does it in the middle of the night, right? So, and, and I don't know why that is, um, but I also, I didn't have 9-volt batteries on me. Right, so I'm just laying there, and there's just something about like you know, you're, I'm often I'm often the Smoky Mountains in Dreamland, right? And then at 2:30 in the morning, just beep, 
and you're just like, right? You know, <laughs> it's just, it's terrifying. And here we had these, these shepherds in the middle of the night and these angels appear to them. The King James Version says that they were sore afraid. They were terribly frightened. Not only, here's the thing, not only were they in the presence of an angel, which is terrifying enough, you see all throughout Scripture, every time an angel appears to someone in Scripture, they are terrified. But there's something else here that I find amazing that I, I've always just for some reason overlooked. Scripture tells us that accompanying this angel was the glory of the Lord. And it's shown all around them. Now when, the, when God manifests his glory to people in Scripture, it's, it's often referred to and described as, 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 that, as brightness, as splendor, as a magnificent great light. It's a brilliance that radiates. We see this when God's glory is, uh, descends on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai in Exodus. We see this on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus reveals his glory to Peter, James, and John. We see this also most vividly when Paul is knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus and he is blinded. We also see this in Isaiah and in Revelation when it talks about the glory of God giving light to all people on earth when he returns to make all things sad untrue. So this was no ordinary fear. I mean, these men were petrified. They were fearful, of course, of an angel, but surely they were fearful as well of the glory of God that was associated with it. So the very first thing that the angel says is what? Fear not. Do not be afraid. Just a side note. God always knows what you need to hear, and he knows exactly when you need to hear it. Do not be afraid. The command fear not and do not or do not be afraid appears 365 times in the Bible. Conveniently, that's one command for every day of the year. So if you struggle in, this, in all seriousness, if you struggle with anxiety, if you struggle with with fear of the unknown or fear, you need to know that for every day that you have, God has a command to not be afraid. Now, here's a tip for you when you read your Bible. Ready? Pro tip. Boom, right? When you read your Bible and you see God or an angel give the command to not be afraid, keep reading. Because more times than not, the command to not be afraid is quickly followed up by the reason you should not be afraid. Here's just a few examples. Joshua chapter 1, verse 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Do you see that? Do not be afraid. Why? For the Lord your God is with you. Right? The reason Joshua was to not be afraid was because God was with him. Another example, Isaiah 41.10. Fear not. Why? For I am with you. Be not dismayed. Why? For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Let's go New Testament, 1, Timothy, sorry, 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Why can I cast all my anxieties on him? Because he cares for you. And we can go on and on with these examples, but I want you to notice something, that the command to not be afraid is always rooted in who God is and what God has done or promised he will do. Always. It's never just simply a command to just don't be afraid. So, so more than the command, we need to focus on the reason for the command. You see, me telling you to not be afraid doesn't mean anything unless I give you a reason why you shouldn't be afraid. Does that make sense? 
Growing up, I received a lot of commands from my parents, right? As any child would. And, and oftentimes, no, no, not disrespectfully, but out of the genuine heart that I had, right? <laughs> I'd ask my parents, why? Why? Like, just a genuine question, like, why? Like, what's, what's the reason? And the, one, the answer that would drive me crazy, and you all probably already know what I'm going to say, is because I told you so. Because I told you so. And you know what that will do? That will make me work just hard enough to not get spanked, right? <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, I remember growing up and we were moving and we had, uh, we were, our, our house was on display, right? So we had people, there was times where you would come and it's like, hey, we have an open house, we have a showing, so like you need to clean your room. And I'm like, all right, bet, I got it. Why? Because like I know that there's going to be people coming into my room and examining that thing, okay? So I got to make sure it's clean. But then there was another example where like, my mom said, hey, I need you to clean your room because we have guests coming over. And then every kid in the room has felt this. Well, like, well, they're not going to my room, right? So here's what I'll do. I'll make the room look clean from the perspective of the doorway, right? So what does that mean? Things under the bed, things in the closet, things wherever it needs to be so that when you look from the doorway, it looks clean. And what's the difference, right? It's not that the command had changed, but it was the motivation behind the command that changed the way I responded to it. What we need to understand is that the reason that we are told to fear not is just as important, if not more important, than the reason we're told not to fear. So what was the reason? What was the reason that these shepherds could stand in the presence of the glory of God and the presence of angels and not be afraid? I mean, that's the whole point of this passage. Because there is good news. Going on, it says, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. The angel says, do not be afraid because I have good news for you. And this news is not just good news for you, but it's good news for all people. This is news that will remove your fear and replace it with peace and joy. The, the phrase to bring good news or bring good tidings here is the Greek word euangelizo, which literally is translated to evangelize. It doesn't have to take a whole lot of explanation for me to tell you the significance of that, right? Well, what was the angel evangelizing? What was the good news going on? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That is the good news, that a Savior has come. That is the good news that removes all fear and, bring, and ushers in peace. That is the good news. This is the good news that was proclaimed to these shepherds. The long-awaited Savior had come. And this is the good news that God is sharing with you this morning. A Savior has come. You need to look no further. Whatever you're trying to seek to save you, whether it be relationships or acceptance or good grades or, or good jobs or recognition or pay, a good paycheck or, you know, whatever it may be, or good health, financial status, whatever you may be seeking for salvation, God stands before you this morning from his word and says, a savior has come. A savior has come. Now, I want us to pay attention here. Because there's a trend in much of modern Christianity to make the good news something else. This isn't a new thing. This happened even when Paul was writing to the churches. Church, uh, when he writes to the church in Galatians, what did he say? He goes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the gospel that I proclaim to you. Here's a few examples. One, that Jesus is, came as a good example. While this may be true, 
That isn't exactly the good news that ushers in peace. This is, that's not the gospel. Why? Because that's an example that I can't live up to. Like, of course, we be holy as I am holy. I, I look at the example of Christ, absolutely. But if I'm basing my hope on the fact that I am able to be as Jesus was, then I am not necessarily going to have a lot of peace. Another one is that Jesus is the one that shows us just how valuable we are. Or Jesus is sent to remind us of the greatness that is within us. You need to know that that is not good news. That's not the good news. The good news that brings peace and removes fear is the news that a Savior has come. That is the point. That is what the gospel is about. A Savior has come for you and for me. Jesus Christ, the third person of the Trinity, the holy eternal Son of God, came to this world to save sinners like you and like me. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. See, the angel proclaimed good news of a Savior. Not an advisor. Not a reformer. Praise the Lord, not a politician. Not a life coach. Not a committee but a savior. Here's the question though. Why does that bring peace? Why does that message bring peace? Because that is our greatest need. That is our greatest need. More than I need positive self-esteem, I need a savior. More than I need, you know, to be cured of physical illness, I need a savior. More than I need financial security, I need a savior. More than I need to live a good moral life and stay out of jail. I need a savior. That is our primary need. And if we preach a Jesus that does all of these other things, but not a Jesus that is a savior, then we have not preached the gospel. If we preach a Jesus that does all of these things, but he is not first and foremost a savior, we have not preached good news. We've just preached self-help. And self-help isn't the gospel. Mark 8.36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? See, our world needs a Savior. And any time we paint a picture of Jesus as less than a Savior, then we do a disservice to the Christmas story, we do a disservice to a world that needs to hear it, and we do a disservice to Christ himself. Epictetus was a pagan writer and a Greek philosopher in the first and second centuries. And this is what he wrote. He says, While the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart, for which man yearns for even more than outward peace. This is a man that is a pagan philosopher in the first and second century, and even he understands that more than we need outward peace, we need inner peace. The good news that Christ has come to save his people. That is the good news. So what happens? Go find him. The angels tell the shepherds what to look for. They say, this will be a sign. They will say that you will know that it is him when you find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Now, it, finding a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes is not unique. Finding a baby that is wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a feeding trough, that's unique, right? That's unique. You can imagine the confusion of these shepherds, right? I mean, all of this spectacle, angels and glory, proclamations of a savior. And then they say he's a baby laid in a trough that is used to feed animals. 
Notice the contrast between these two pictures, right? The glory of the Lord on display and the Lord of that glory known in his humility. Because here's the thing, that baby in the manger was no less glorious than the angels who were standing before them. If anything, he was more glorious, but however, his glory was concealed. But isn't that beautiful, though, that this story, we see the unapproachable glory of our Savior, while at the same time, we see his incredible meekness as he invites us to approach him. Remember that the revealing of the glory of the Lord is meant to point you to the Lord of glory. The revealing of the glory of the Lord is meant to point you to the Lord of glory. And then suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Again, we see this contrast. No longer is there simply one angel, but now there's an entire host of angels singing praises to God. And as a reminder, all this good news is for two purposes. What? For God's highest glory and for the peace of God's people. So we get to the third point. First point, what? The unlikely audience, the remarkable message. And the last thing we see is an appropriate response. Shepherds go to see Jesus. There it is. Right? But the appropriate response, verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. See, before we continue, let me just say this. The good news was proclaimed to these shepherds. They were no longer ignorant of what had happened. They now know what they need to know. The question is how will they respond to what has been told to them? That is the question. And here we see their response is the only appropriate response. What do they do? They run to Jesus. What does it say? It says that they went with haste. And I'll pose that same question to you this morning. How have you responded to the good news of Jesus? How have you responded to the good news of Jesus? I'll tell you what I tell our students all the time. I told our students this dozens of times, that how you respond to God's faithfulness is the most important thing about you. More than your job, more than your kids, more than your wife, more than your school, more than your parents, more than anything else, how you responded to God's faithfulness and goodness to you is the most important thing about you. When the shepherds responded to the message by running to Jesus, you know what they found? Jesus. Jeremiah 29, 13, what what does God say? You seek me and you will find me, what? When you seek me with all of your heart. God is not running from anyone in this room. They found exactly what they were told they would find. They found a humble Savior. Now they're face to face with the Savior. Notice that the angels had left. What? The angels went away, and now they're with the Savior. And here's the thing, is that the angels may leave, but Jesus remains. The angels were gone, but it didn't matter because they had something better than the angels. They were face to face with their Savior. Now there's something else that ties this entire story together. Something else that ties this entire story together, and it's incredibly significant that we pay attention to this. Where were these shepherds? They were in Bethlehem, right? They were in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem was known for its flocks of sheep. As we close, I want you to just pay attention for me. That, that Bethlehem was known for its flocks of sheep. 
But it's not necessarily the size of these flocks of sheep, but it was actually what the sheep were actually being raised for. You see, in Bethlehem, it's very close to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is home of the temple. And the shepherds in Bethlehem were responsible for looking after the sheep that were to be used in the temple sacrifices in Jerusalem. That was their job. Now, I want you to think about this. Here you have shepherds that were charged with looking after the sacrificial lambs. And now they stand face to face with the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. I mean, that is not by accident. It's not by accident. Because that baby did not stay in a manger. But he lived 33 years. Sinless life. Because that baby came not just to... Jesus was not born just to come and perform miracles. He, was not, he did not come just to, just to preach. That baby was born to die. Born in Bethlehem, as the land that takes away the sins of the world, just a few miles away from the city where he will die for your sins and for my sins. But we know that he doesn't stay dead, right? Three days later, he rises from the dead. And here's something that's even, that's also amazing. Who does he appear to first? He appears to Mary, right? He appears to a woman, a woman at the time that in, in Jewish culture, that, they, that the, the, the testimony of a woman wasn't really highly regarded, right? You see any parallel there? Who was the first to hear the good news of a coming Savior? Those that were not highly regarded. See, the, the, the life of Jesus on this earth is bookended by the gospel coming to two people that some people would say they deserve it the least. And why is that? It's because the gospel is not earned. Salvation is not attained or worked for. It is a gift of God purchased by the blood of Jesus. And that's what we celebrate when we celebrate Christmas. This week, as you gather with family and friends, whether you travel out of town or you come here, whatever it may be, remember the reason that Christmas is great, as Pastor Ethan said it earlier, is because Easter is real. If you're in this room and you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus, let me tell you this, that there is not a greater decision that you can make than to surrender your life to Christ. Like I said, how you respond to the good news of Jesus is the most important thing about you. And no one is outside the grace of Jesus. Father, I thank you for this day. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the fact that you came down to us. Father, you didn't stand up on your throne and, and, and say, come on, keep trying, keep trying, keep trying. But Father, you came down to us and did for us what we could never do on our own. And God, I thank you for that. I thank you for the fact that these shepherds could come face to face with their Savior and leave praising you. And God, this morning I ask that even as we may not be physically seeing the baby in the manger. Father, we have even greater gift, and that is the Spirit of God living within us. And God, as we leave this place, after coming face to face with your good news, God, let us leave this place rejoicing. Father, I thank you. I praise you. I pray that everything 
that was said this morning would bring honor and glory to you and everything that, do, that doesn't, God, that you would just wipe it from the record. God, I thank you in the name of your son, Jesus. Thank you again for listening to Central Church Podcast. For more information on how you can take your next step, visit us online at gocentralchurch.org.